right, let's close in prayer. That was all I had to say in myself. You've heard everything that's hopefully will come out of me today. Okay. We're, all right, good morning. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 5, please. Daniel chapter 5. This is actually the only chapter in our study of Daniel that we're doing the whole chapter in one day. Every other chapter has been divided into multiple weeks. Uh, but this is the one chapter we're going to cram everything into one week. Part of that was done so we can get the conference in on the right schedule that we wanted to do. Uh, but let's pick up Daniel chapter 5. It is 31 verses, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. I'll try not to read too fast so that we have the context of what we're looking at today. Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation." Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. 
And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mini, mini, tekel, uparshan. This is the interpretation of each word. Mini, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's look to the Lord. Father, we uh, continue to thank you for your word, not just historical records, but uh, the revelations of who you are, how you work in men, and how you've managed time in men and kingdoms, uh, how you are the one to be glorified. And Lord, as we study this passage this morning, uh, we would ask that you would just reveal yourself to us, reveal the truth that you want us to learn, not just corporately as a group, but as an individual. Each person may have something different to learn today, some change we need to make, some growth we need to have, some humility we need to put before you. Uh, so, Lord, we just ask you to lead and guide us this morning. Uh, teach us your word, uh, that you may be glorified from it, and may we grow in our closeness and relationship with you. Thank you again for this time. Thank you for Daniel, for what you did with him in his life, and that these things were recorded for us for all this time uh, to have and to know and to realize who you are because of it. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So where we are right now, it's been a, we left off chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was still king. Now all of a sudden this guy Belshazzar is king. It's actually been about 23 years since Nebuchadnezzar was king. Belshazzar is not the next king in line. There were other sons who came in place after Nebuchadnezzar. So when you see your father, the king, it's just kind of a, a phrase they use to show that you're a descendant of this person. So the queen is probably the queen mother, Nebuchadnezzar's widow, um, or at least his mother. So there's, and I'm not going to get into all the historical stuff because actually there's some discrepancies on what king and who was what king. And when you get different historical records, they have the same name for the same person, different names for the same person, or you know, they, they don't agree in the same name. But what we do know is this Belshazzar was king at this time. This is 66 years into the captivity of Judah in Babylon. Now, if you remember, Daniel was taken as probably a teenager when they were first taken. 66 years later, I'm going to say he's probably in his 80s. He's been around for a while. But it's been quiet for 23 years. 
there's not much we've heard about Daniel, and, and we'll look into that maybe why later. But um, So that's where we are in, in time. This guy Belshazzar is uh, either king or he's, a lot of people think he's a co-regent. It means there's another king named Nabinidus at the same time who may even be out fighting the Medes and Persians right now, may have already lost and is in exile. So when we see him saying, uh, I'm going to make this guy the third in the kingdom, it could be because there's a co-king who's out there at the same time. Um, or he's just got the kind of paranoia that a paranoid king would have. You never take someone that you don't know and make them second in command. Because the second in command only has two responsibilities. Serve the first in command and try and become the first in command. So you don't take it out like that, you make him second. You don't even know who it is, right? I'm gonna make, I don't even know who it is, second in command. No, you're going to make him a third in command, so you at least have him in his place. Your second in command is, is good. So that's why we see all those things historically. Um, and now Belshazzar um, doesn't seem like a really great guy. He is just uh, out there partying. Now, we've read the whole passage, and so we know that the Medes and Persians are going to come in and take his life, and, and this is the end of the Babylonian Empire. This is the day that they lose their, their kingdom and their power. Um, so obviously, we can think that the army of the Medes and Persians didn't just wake up this day and run over because they found out they're having a party and it's a good time to get in. They've been sieging the Babylonian Empire for a very long period of time, and now they're at Babylon. And while they're outside sieging his kingdom, trying to break in, this guy's just having a party. He just wants. He thinks he's so safe. Why does he feel he's so safe? Well, the walls around Babylon were 17 miles long, 22 feet thick, and 90 feet high. So you'd feel pretty secure if somebody was outside banging on the door. The, 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 the outer walls had guard towers that were 100 feet high, so 10 feet above the wall. The city gates were made of bronze, and there's a, a system of inner and outer walls and moats. So this is not like you knock on the door and you, and you break it in, right? This is, not, this is a very secure kingdom, but he has a false sense of security. He's put his faith in the walls, and he's just given up and, uh, any concern with, with the siege, and he's just drinking and partying and given up. So I think that there's definitely a good application for us to learn right off the bat. Let's be careful with what we put our faith in and where we think we're safe. Yes, we were guarded by God, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we have that protection. But the way the Medes and Persians actually get in is it's believed that they, they blocked off the river and the water dropped and they got under the wall. Okay? So your wall is great. They can't get through the wall. They can't get over the wall, but they got under the wall. So where's our false sense of security in our life right now? We have to be very careful that we are thoroughly engaging in the spiritual warfare in our life, that we are not leaving any area compromised, that we're not taking any assumptions, we're not being lax in any area of our life, that we ensure that the whole word of God in all area of our life is being applied. Because wherever the weakness is, and there is one, everyone has one, that's where you're going to find your attack comes from. So we have to actually spend the time to not just relax and feel like, well, I'm saved and I've got the word of God and I have the protection of the Holy Spirit, so what could happen to me? But you've got to examine your life. I have to examine my life and look, where is my weakness? Because that is where I will be overcome. And that's where the enemy will get in. And once they're in, they couldn't be stopped. In fact, they also believe there was an open gate because the walls were so thick that they left the gate open. Once they got through the wall, there was nothing to stop them. So once we get past that open uh, perimeter, we, also, we often tend to leave ourselves 
vulnerable. So just a little application there and how the kingdom of Babylon fell while this uh, guy, I was going to use another word, um, yeah, this Jamoke was partying and um, not really taking his responsibilities as a king seriously and defending his, his kingdom. Now, what happens during this time now, this is, this is where the, the story gets interesting, is in his drunkenness and in the party, this festive thing going on, he says, break out the vessels that have been taken from the temple of the house of God, which has been in Jerusalem. He wants to show how powerful he is and how unconcerned he is with the attack, that he's going to use the trophies of his past victories, of the kingdom's past victories, to, to manifest itself in the party. We're going to use the cups that we took from those people, and we're going to drink wine from it, and we're even going to show that no one can beat us. This is, this is just an example of how great we are and the people that we beat. God obviously has a very strong and immediate reaction to this. And I think it's interesting, you know, God, I mean, the, the Babylonian captivity is part of God's discipline, right, for Judah for their rebellion. So God manifested Babylon and put the kingdom in place and allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take his people. And he allowed the temple to be ransacked. And he allowed these things to be taken. And he allowed the things of the, of the temple to be put on shelves and trophies to show that they had been conquered. But this is where God draws a line. They took the cups from the temple and they're using them to drink wine and celebrate other gods and praise other gods that don't exist, the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and, and whatever they are. What, why does this make God so upset? Well, even though when we look through the, the temple and the tabernacle, when these things were established, right, when God laid out the, the, the table for the showbread and the candlestick and all the things that go along with the temple, there's really nothing great manifested or, or expressed that God said, you got to make these cups for the specific purpose. So where do these vessels that they're using to drink wine from come from? Well, actually, it turns out that there was a thing called a drink offering. I honestly, honestly never really spent much time looking at the drink offering and the sacrifices. We did the, the study years ago when we looked at the burnt offering and the sin offering and the grain offering and the peace offering and the trespass offering. I, I always get one wrong, but um, four, four is my limit. I'm a musician. I can only count to four. So once I hit five, I can't remember the fifth one. But, the, the, uh, but when you look through... Um, let's turn to Numbers 15 real quick. The first time we see the phrase drink offering is actually with Jacob when he builds the altar at Bethel after wrestling with God. He offers a drink offering to God. But now God is establishing here in Numbers the law about sacrifices. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you, and you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice, to fulfill a vow, or as a freewill offering, or in your appointed feasts, to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd of the flock, or the flock. Then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of oil. And one-fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering, you shall prepare with the burnt offering or the sacrifice for each lamb. And it goes on. In fact, if you look up drink offering, you'll find many instances in, in the different books in Leviticus and Numbers especially that the drink offering comes up actually with these offerings rather consistently. But we've never really paid attention to it. 
What's the significance? Listen, we know, right? Every offering and everything that goes on that went on in the temple, whether it was the, the devices that they used or the offering itself, they all point to Jesus Christ. What do we think of when we think of a cup of wine as an offering being poured out before the Lord? The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are taking the cups that were used for this offering and they are partying with them and they are praising and worshiping other gods. The cup is not what's important. The cup is just a cup. But God is not going to stand for that which symbolizes the blood of his son, which back then they had no idea it meant this. The Jews didn't know it, and certainly the Babylonians didn't know it, but we see it now. The wine poured out as the offering is the symbol of Christ pouring out his blood and sacrificing himself to pay for our sins. So God takes immediate judgment because of this. God does not stand for this, this sacrilege, this desecration of this symbol. You know, God works in a lot of different ways, and he gives a lot of things a lot of time in his judgment. He's tremendously gracious. People who don't realize, people trying to think that uh, God is a God of wrath and, and what kind of God is that don't realize the patience and grace that God shows throughout eternity uh, with, his, with his thing. But listen, we know it from the scriptures. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. What a man reaps, he shall sow. And Belshazzar reaped, and he sowed. He poured out, he used these cups that were supposed to symbolize the, the wine offering for the Lord Jesus Christ's blood. And we remember now for us today, right? The Lord tells us, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, every time you take this bread in this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not partake in an unworthy manner. For us today, we have to live our lives. We're not perfect. We have to come before God and confess and say, God, I screwed up this week. And before I take this cup, I want you to know that my heart is broken as yours is for the failures I've made this week. But I take this cup in remembrance of my Lord who shed his blood for me. If I don't have that passion and reconciliation uh, in mind of what the cup means, I'm mocking God. I'm like those who mocked him on the cross, Paul said. I'm like those who mocked him on the cross. Let's take it in a worthy manner and not mock the sacrifice of Christ. Let's not live our lives in a way and then take the cup that just says, this doesn't mean anything. I do it just because I'm supposed to and I have to. We need to take that thing and drink that cup in remembrance with severity. N not in perfection, because we're not. That's not, what it's, that's not what it's about at all. But it's about that humble heart that realizes what the cup has done and what it means. So these devices, now these vessels, um, the, you know, they, they brought out things from the temple that were consecrated. They were set apart to be used. Do, do we have things in our life now that should be set apart that we're not using that way? How are we living? How are we spending our time? How are we spending our time in the Word? What, what, what are we using? What has God blessed you with that should be used for Him and His glory that you're not? Everyone has to reconcile that for themselves with God. So I'm, I'm not going to go through a list now. Um, but I'll just encourage you in your time with God, 
Say, God, is there something that you've set apart me for that I'm not doing? Is there something you've blessed me with that should be used for you that I am just frivolously not using for that purpose? Why am I here? What, what are the gifts that you've given me? Am I edifying the church with my gifts or, or am I just ambivalent to why you have me? Now, going further down, we get to the writing on the wall. The, the uh, oh, I'm still in numbers. Huh? Okay. So as they're doing this, in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared, verse 5, and wrote opposite the lamp stand on the plaster of the wall. I do not think, this is my own opinion, but just sometimes people get this question. I do not think this is the lampstand from the temple. A um, couple reasons. One, um, it's not the same word translated. Now, maybe there's a difference from Hebrew in, in the language that this is translated from, but it's not the word menorah, which is what the word is when we think of the lampstand that Moses had to make out of solid gold uh, for the temple. Two, I don't think in the middle of their drunkenness, they're going to get out a candlestick, put oil in it, put a wick in it, light it up just to do this. They've got other things that they're using for the thing. I think the lampstand is mentioned here to make it very clear that God wanted Belshazzar to see the hand. God could have delivered this message in a lot of different ways. He could have sent Daniel. He could have sent someone else. He could have presented the message in a lot of ways. In many of those ways, Belshazzar could have said, get out of here, I don't believe you. You're making that up. You're just doing whatever. This way, there's no question where the message came from. This requires someone special interpret, and it knocks his knees. Brings him to his knees, knocks his knees. He falls apart because God wanted him to see. That's why the lampstand is mentioned. If you disagree with me, that's okay. It's not a, a doctrinal thing. It's just my opinion on, on um, reading the scriptures. But God wants him to know that this message is from him. And the only way to know that is to get Daniel. No one else can interpret this. None of his soothsayers, none of his astrologers, none of his magicians. Just like the days of Nebuchadnezzar. No one can interpret but Daniel. Daniel's in Babylon at this time for a reason. If you remember, uh, when we started, it's been 23 years. Haven't heard anything about Daniel. Different kings have come and gone, some for a few years, some for a few months, until Belshazzar became king. Where's Daniel been? What's he been doing? It's not recorded. But here's what we know. When the queen mentions him, look at what she says about him. There is a man in your kingdom. Now this translation is, I think, a little off from the literal. Is the spirit of the holy God. I don't think she's talking about the, the Lord God Jehovah there. Um, it says, in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. Daniel's reputation after 23 years is just as strong as the last time he was there before King Nebuchadnezzar. In 23 years of no service to any kings, his reputation is intact. Hasn't changed at all. Daniel, as we've looked at throughout since the beginning, since he was a young man, is one of the greatest examples of integrity that we will find. And we looked at his integrity when he was young, when he wouldn't eat the king's delicacies. And he said, no, I'll stay. Just give me fruits and vegetables and I'll be pure. And I'll, I won't take the king's delicacies and compromise myself and my integrity. And we see him staying true to the word of God and his faithfulness. And he won't bow before the statue. 
uh, him and, his, and, and the other three other guys won't bow before the statue. They hold true to their grace with God, to their faith with God. Now, in this time, I want to point out the integrity that Daniel had in his patience. Daniel does not appear to have spent 23 years going, why won't they listen to me? How come nobody asks me anything? Don't they know who I am? Don't they know what I've done? Haven't they seen what I've done? Haven't they seen what God's done with me? Why won't anybody ask me anything? Idiots. No. He just patiently does what God has him do. And if it's to serve quietly in the kingdom with the role God's given him, he does it. And if God never calls him to a special place again, I'm sure Daniel was fine with it. But because God does, after Daniel's patience, he's not lost his integrity. See, what we have to remember is we can't predict what's going to come down the road. All we can know is that we have to be available to God when he calls. And if you lose your integrity and you lose your credibility over that time in waiting, you can't be used because your reputation is shot. You have to just patiently work through wherever God has you with kindness and mercy and humility, trusting in God. Just trust in God. It's not easy. It's not easy. It takes a tremendous amount of faith. Let's look at Psalm 37, please. Psalm 37, starting in verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret and only causes harm. I don't know what you're going through. What, I don't know what God has you waiting for right now, but if we wait on him, he'll bring it to pass. Let him deal with that which is a problem, with that which is causing difficulty to wait on. Trust in him. Psalm 62, please. Verse 1, truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. Silently. Not complainingly, not whiningly, not grudgingly, not miserably, not mopily. Silently. Daniel waited silently. And when the time was right, when God needed him, the queen, the queen who was there 23 years ago goes, I know the guy. I know the guy. Not for Daniel's glory, for God's glory. Do you want to be used for God's glory? Then you wait patiently and silently. God may not use you for another 30 years in something. You may have to just sit here patiently. Why won't God use me? And then one day, bam, he's going to say, I need you to step up right now. Will you be ready? Will you be ready? Or will you give up? 
God never uses me. God never asked me to do this. God never asked me to do that. The opportunity never comes for me. He always uses this guy. He always uses that guy. No, we can wait patiently because our salvation comes from the Lord, not ourselves, not our glory. Let's look at what the queen says about Daniel. Go back to Daniel, please. I love these things that she says about him. In this one, where are we? Verse 11. Light and understanding and wisdom. Interesting choices that she uses to describe Daniel. We need to have a constant effort to grow so that all the character of God is exposed in us. Grace, mercy, kindness, selflessness, generosity, right? Mercy. All these things we need to have people look at us and go, oh, I know a guy. He's so kind. He's so gracious. He's so selfless. You should ask that guy. But in this instance, she uses the words light, understanding, and wisdom. And these are three things that I think that we can strive to have people say about us. It would be wonderful if someone said, you should go ask Greg, because in him is light and understanding and wisdom. That would be a nice day. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, so let your light shine before men, so that your Father in heaven is glorified. There is a light within us. Does it shine? You know, light exposes things. Light is also a symbol of purity because there's no darkness where there's light, like Jesus Christ. But it also exposes things, and it shows things. We are to be the light that shines unto the Lord Jesus Christ. So all the things that are in him that we want the world to see, we should shine that. So when somebody's looking for someone who has that character, they look at us and say, I got the guy. I have the woman. I know who's like that. Turn with me to Luke 24. Now, this is the, uh, the road to Emmaus. Jesus comes upon the disciples after he has been resurrected. And after he uh, brought fish with them, and he says to them, actually, I'm in the right passage? Yeah, the road to Emmaus, right. Down in verse 40, 44, I'm sorry. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. And then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Understanding said this before, been saying it for years. I hope it's true in me someday. There is nothing that God hides about himself and his son from any believer. There is no one who is more special. There's gifts of teaching, right? And there's different gifts of ministries and applying these things. But no one is, 
held back or kept from understanding the scriptures. God wants us, every single person who is a follower of Christ, to be able to understand and know the scriptures. You are not impacted or impaired or kept from the full knowledge of the word of God. Maybe you don't have the gift of teaching. That that's, that's not the point. The point is that you in your life can fully understand who Jesus Christ is and all the scripture that reveals who he is. There's no secret. There's nothing hidden. No longer, there are no more mysteries. God has revealed them all to us. James 3.17, please. I will tell you that when I did a quick word search looking for good verses for light, understanding, and wisdom in the New Testament, wisdom is the grand winner. That's the one that will come up 30, 30 plus times if you search the New Testament. Wisdom is rather important to God. The Proverbs tell us that wisdom was with God when he created all things because everything has a purpose. There's a reason for everything. So wisdom is very important for God to God for the believer to have in their life. In verse 17 of James 3, we read, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. When someone says, we need a guy who's got wisdom, do those attributes come from you when they think of, do you have wisdom? Do they see a wisdom that is pure? peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy? Because if you want someone to think of you the way the queen thought of Daniel when the king needed someone, that's the way it should be in your life. So does our mature spirituality wait for vindication, revenge, or glorification? That opportunity to shine light to show understanding and reveal wisdom. And then we will get to the interpretation. Back to Daniel. Again, I I mentioned this earlier. Yes, God judges Belshazzar, and yes, God overthrows the Babylonian kingdom, which is actually part of his plan. It's it's actually in the time that God... uh, warned in Jeremiah, which was before the Ju- Judah was even taken by Babylon, this is the exact time frame that God said would, would be in Jeremiah 25. But what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, and this is why we realize, if you look at this the right way, God is a God of tremendous mercy. Look at verse 18. God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And he talks about how great his kingdom was, all by the hand of God. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed, and they took his glory from him, and he was driven from men. And then, as he says in 21, when he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over whom he chooses, God restored him. But you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. God has made it clear throughout history who he is. God has made it clear. There is no excuse. There is no excuse today. God wants everyone to know who he is. And God does not rush to judgment of Belshazzar for no reason. 
Now, God worked in Nebuchadnezzar in the way he worked with Nebuchadnezzar. He gave him chances. He gave him opportunities. He gave him warnings. And when he still got proud, God broke him down. And he took away his kingdom. But when Belshazzar looked on high, he says, and I remember the God, and he, God restores back his kingdom when, Belshazzar, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself. But Belshazzar, he had the opportunity to learn that lesson. And that's what God wanted from Belshazzar, not to go through the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar did. God wanted Belshazzar to learn from Nebuchadnezzar. God doesn't do the same thing over and over again with the same people repeatedly. He did it once, learned from it. Learn from it. God gives the message that his kingdom was numbered, which means God set a certain length for it. And it was finished, which means that number is now. And it was weighed and found wanting. Proverbs 16.11 says, And honest weights and scales are the Lord's. God was not unfair to Belshazzar. He gave him every opportunity to have a righteous kingdom. He gave him every opportunity. He gave him the full life of Nebuchadnezzar and all he could have learned from him. And he chose not to. So there's not injustice with God. There's not unfairness because he didn't give Belshazzar the same chance he gave Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar had more of a chance because he could have avoided everything Nebuchadnezzar went through. But he chose not to. And as such, the kingdom is divided and it's going to be taken over by the Medes and the Persians. And again, as I mentioned in Jeremiah, before Judah was even taken captive, God said, Babylon has 70 years. And that was four years before the 66 years that Jeremiah said that. 70 years. God said it. God executed it. There's a lot to learn from just the idea of the writing on the wall. Just that phrase. We use this phrase now. It's, it's, a, it's become a cliche in, in our society. Most people don't know where it comes from, obviously, because it's from the Bible. So, of course, nobody knows where it comes from. But uh, this is where it comes from, the writing on the wall. And it's become kind of watered down, you know? Oh, look at the Mick. He can't even run to first base. The writing's on the wall. His career's over. He should see the writing on the wall. It just means like, hey, the truth is right before you. The evidence, the outcome, whatever, it's right before you. It's obvious. You should see it. Maybe in a way God was telling Belshazzar, because you didn't learn from Nebuchadnezzar, the writing's on the wall. Gave you every chance. You know, sometimes we have things in our life that we need to go, you know what, the writing's on the wall. It doesn't have to be this extreme, an execution, but sometimes you've got to look at your life and go, writing's on the wall. I've got to fix this. I can see where this is going. It doesn't have to be happening now. You can see it coming, and the writing's on the wall. You can see it coming. Because the God of mercy is trying to give you every chance to go, dude, do that. The writing's on the wall. The writing is on the wall. But there's a bigger writing on the wall. 2 Timothy chapter 3, please. We will close with these thoughts. Second Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. You want to talk about writing on the wall? 
But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Last days, sure feels like it. For 2,000 years, people have been reading this and thinking, these are the last days. But I don't know, I've ever seen anything in history, I don't think we've ever seen like this, so enormous. Um, now, now's the time to let people know the writing's on the wall. Christ is coming again. The writing is on the wall, folks. Christ is coming again. Let's remember that when we proclaim the Lord's death with the cup, we want to do it in a way that glorifies and honors Him. Let's let our integrity shine so that we can be called or when we're called. And let's wait on the Lord until that time. And is there writing on the wall? Make the change. If you see the writing on the wall, make the change. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again. I know that we just scratched the surface of all you have in these words. Um, But I want to thank you that you are so patient and so gracious. And help us to be as patient as you to wait so that our integrity and our reputation, which is all designed in our life to glorify you, does not become smeared so we become unusable. However long you need us to wait, Lord, we will wait. We will wait patiently. We will wait years. We will wait decades. But we will wait. But Lord, I pray that when the opportunity comes, you will make it clear to us that now is the time for us to step forward and serve you. Lord, we want to glorify you. We thank you again for the cup, the bread and the cup. Thank you that we have this privilege to remember our Lord Jesus Christ and his suffering for us so regularly. May we take it seriously, not mocking the cross, however unintentionally or intentionally, deliberately or innocently. Lord, reveal to us that which is unworthy in us so that we can take this cup in a way that glorifies Christ. Lord, if there's something in our life that we need to change, if the writing is on the wall, please make it clear to us. And then give us the strength and courage to do what needs to be done. Lord, clearly the writing is on the wall that Christ will return. As we anxiously await our Lord, we do pray for um, opportunities to tell those who need to know that Christ is coming back and the writing is on the wall. You have been so gracious and patient with mankind. Over 2,000 years, you have been patient. And if it be your will, it could be thousands more. We don't know. But we sure see the signs, Lord. There's so many more verses we could have read that pointed to the signs that we see now. So, Lord, for those who do not know Jesus Christ, we pray for them, that their hearts would be opened, that they would come to the saving, humble recognition that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you that we have been saved and redeemed and spared from the judgment that's coming from the writing on the wall. Thank you again for this time, Lord, and we just ask your blessing uh, in all these things in our lives. We thank you in Christ's name.
Amen. Lord bless you. Have a wonderful week.